Marion Wilkinson is a multi-award-winning journalist with a career that spanned radio, television, and print. She's covered politics, national security, refugee issues, and climate change, as well as serving as a foreign correspondent in Washington, D.C. for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. She was a deputy editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, executive producer of the ABC's Four Corners program, and a senior reporter with Four Corners. Um, as environment... I'm actually reading the blurb from the front of her book here. <laughs> I actually read her biography. I, I went searching for a little bit of information about Marion Wilkinson on mm. the web. She is a Brisbane girl. She, um, she left, uh, left school after year 10 and went out and did a whole lot of things, including a job for an Albanian skin doctor <laughs> who, who, uh, who was not, not a particularly nice man, from what I can understand, in terms of present-day politics. Um, Anyway, she went on and had this incredibly illustrious career. She's a multi-walkley award-winning author. She's, uh, you know, got everything like that. I just want to say um, she's written several books, The Fixer, uh, about the Labour power broker Graham Richardson, Dark Victory, Australia's Response to the Asylum Seekers, which she co-authored with David Marr, and she was inducted into the Australian Media Hall of Fame. And I'd like you to welcome Marion Wilkinson from Australia. Thank you. <laughs> People can read the blurb for themselves. I think I'll just, I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll just go straight into a conversation with you because it's such a privilege to have you here. Thank you for coming. I've been struggling about how to address this book with you in a conversation. Normally, I kind of have a, a way in, which is quick, but this is such a, a tremendous work. I mean, really, in the old sense of the word, it's, kind of, it word, it's, it's big, it's, it's all-encompassing, and it addresses... Um, it's, it's almost a bit awe-inspiring, and it, it addresses this battle over Australia's response to climate change, which uh, is such an enormous and complicated part of our present history. I, I might add that very few of the players involved in it come out of it very well by the end mm -hmm. of the book. But what I thought to maybe try was try and identify a few kind of pivot points, and then maybe if I could get you to talk to them, maybe we could kind of the whole thing would unravel around us. And the first one that I'd, I wanted to go to was where you actually start the book, which is kind of 1997, which is uh, the lead up to the, the signing of the Kyoto Protocol. John Howard still in power, uh, and Exxon Mobile, Exxon Mobil have decided to launch a campaign against trying to discredit the climate science. And that decision by ExxonMobil, which is kind of right at the very centre of everything that's happened since, mm -hmm. seems to me a really extraordinary decision because 20 years earlier, they had been at the cutting edge of climate science. They had hired James Black. They'd hired James Hansen from NASA. They were across the whole subject. But then around this time, they suddenly decided we're going to go the other way. I just wondered if you could speak to that. Why that happened and how what happened after they decided to do that? You're absolutely right. There was that period when ExxonMobil had itself, through its own scientists, done some fantastic work on the science of global warming. What actually happened, I think, around this time, and this was in the early to mid-90s, the fossil fuel companies and, uh, and their political allies suddenly realised that the world was about to take climate change seriously. And what it was all about was the now famous Kyoto Protocol. All the world leaders uh, were talking about what they were going to do in Kyoto. And for the first time in our history, there was a, a real acceptance of the climate science, and that acceptance of the climate science was going to have serious consequences. And that was that they were going to ask the rich countries, the wealthy countries like the US, like Australia, like Russia, like Europe, to cut their carbon emissions. And that they were actually saying, we now accept climate science and ultimately we will have to basically phase out fossil fuels. And there was an absolutely enormous reaction from industry and particularly from the fossil fuel industry. And from this time forth, 
a number of the big companies, but Exxon in particular, they weren't the only ones, Peabody Coal, even our own BHP at the time, began forming these lobby groups to press their own interests. But Exxon and a few of the others took it much further. They decided that they would actually fund people who would discredit the climate science. And I think that's when our trouble started and the whole debate over climate science and climate politics became so toxic. Yeah. And, but they, they didn't have to do that. They, they, were, they must have been aware at that point that they could have made investment decisions to transition out of the fuel that they, because they were, they were across all the sides. They knew that it was true at that point. They could have made those decisions at that time, but they decided not to. And it's an interesting contrast is that, you know, for instance, Tesla, which is now the most profitable country in, company in the world, for what was the most profitable car company in the world, um, and ExxonMobil is, is worth almost nothing. In terms, of, in terms of, of that, is worth about a tenth of what Tesla is. So there were choices that they made there. There were absolute choices, but you've got to remember at that time, if you looked at a company like Exxon, they had uh, oil interests and gas interests literally all over the world. They were, uh, I think at that point, uh, the most profitable company in the US and probably pretty much the most profitable com company in the world at that time. But also they had this new um, CEO who became executive chair, Lee Raymond. And he was one of those, you know, classic characters straight out of central casting. He was a super tough guy. He really ran the company top down. He had fantastic political connections, especially in the US Republican Party with people like Dick Cheney. And he was absolutely determined that his company, his industry, was going to maintain, not only maintain its profits, grow its profits. And he had no qualms at all about funding people who would take the path of discrediting climate science and funding these think tanks. And I, I in fact, when, when I was in Washington, I went and interviewed one of the guys who ran uh, the think tank that was the most heavily funded by Exxon. And he's in the book, a guy called Myron Ebel. And he said to me at the time, you know, there were all these people in business and in the Republican Party, and they, said we should just fight this on economic grounds, saying, you know, we can't afford to do this, we can't afford to cut emissions, people will lose jobs. And I said, and I believe, this is Myron talking, that we also had to fight the science. Because if we didn't fight the, the climate scientists, people would just think that we're greedy and not willing to change. We would basically lose the moral stance. And so that's why it was so important for them to fight the science and to fund the, the climate skeptic scientists. Yeah. And, and I mean, one of the things, this book, I have to say, reads a bit like a thriller. It's, it's, uh, Marion has done this extraordinary achievement because it is, as I said, so vast in its, its scope, but she doesn't get bogged down in the detail. She sits with a, a chapter here on one section and then a chapter on another section and a chapter on another section. And each one kind of ends in a cliffhanger because we all know what happened. It's like the, we know that uh, how do we get from there to this next stage? But the, and, and there are some really quite bad guys in it. You know, there are some good guys and there are some bad guys and there's some pretty grey characters <laughs> in the middle of it. But that's one of the strange things. You've got ExxonMobil and you've got Hugh Morgan um, and... Uh, Extraordinary enough, you have Corey Bernardi, who, <laughs> who, who, has never, who has never struck me as anybody of any, uh, any account at all. But it, it, I mean, I'm sorry, I, I'm this, this is a, a poor man, he probably is much more of a character. But certainly, he has an enormous part to play in what happened. He did have an enormous part to play, and he would be absolutely horrified that you would say what you've said about him, Stephen, because uh, Corey, if nothing else, has a very large ego 
And, you know, as his wife famously said, <laughs> it was very lucky that me and Corey were in love with the same man. Uh, so <laughs> marriage could survive. <laughs> but, um, and, but he is one of these almost like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern characters who appear in the climate change story, but actually end up being very influential. Corey, early on in the piece, had been mentored by one of the serious members of the Carbon Club, a South Australian senator called Nick Minchin, who was much more famous. And when Corey Bernardi came up through the right wing of the Liberal Party in South Australia, he got introduced to all the big players in Australians, Australia's uh, business community who were fighting against climate action, the Hume organs of the world who ran, um, uh, at the time, Western Mining Corporation. And suddenly this, as you say, nobody senator from South Australia began making these rather extraordinary speeches that when I went over them, whole slabs had just been lifted from the climate sceptics who were being funded in America by people like Exxon. And so that's, I became very curious about talking to Corey about this. And he, uh, the more we talked about it, the more you could see that he was incredibly proud of his role in pushing back action on climate change. But he also became, he thought, a very sort of adept political strategist because he went to one of the more famous right-wing Republican political training camps in Virginia in America, right at the early days of the internet and influencing by social media. And he really got into this in quite a big way, brought this back to Australia. This, kind of, this idea and of collect, collecting tens of thousands of email addresses and then getting people to, to lobby um, elected representatives and things like that. Yeah, and so that was one of his skills. He, he linked up with those American people, um, the American right-wing Republican activists, but he also brought those skills back to Australia. But Interestingly, you know, he, he became an absolutely key character in pulling Malcolm Turnbull down first time around as opposition leader uh, back in 2009 and then uh, in blowing up both Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard's um, climate policies. Yeah, I want to come back to Kevin in, in, in a moment, but yeah, keep, keep going. And it, what was very ironic by the time I caught up with uh, Corey for the book, the thing that struck me, you know, the way you can, you can have all these um, political ideas and push your political case, but there's nothing like being personally thwarted that actually impacts you more sometimes than what you think you believe. One of the reasons I think he wanted to talk about all this and talk about all this history with me was the fact that once he had helped get Tony Abbott into power on the back of essentially killing off most of Australia's climate policy at the time, Tony would not put him in the ministry. And man, did that sting. He did not forgive that. And so then years later, he was, you know, quite keen to talk about all this. I mean, one of the, thi one of the, the ways, it's not just the email addresses. The other thing was that he was the one who brought this whole concept of a great big tax on everything back from America. That's his, that's his contribution to the climate debate. Yeah, it's um, so funny, this, you know. We, um, we always think of Tony Abbott as the man who, you know, came up with, you know, we've got to fight the carbon tax, him and uh, Barnaby Joyce, and all those famous lines, you know, it'll put... It'll put uh, so much, uh, so much tax on a leg of lamb. It'll be a hundred dollars for the Sunday dinner and all these sorts of things. But what I realised, unravelling how all these campaigns began, that all that um, strategy of boiling climate policy down to a carbon tax 
That was all workshopped by a whole lot of Washington think tanks with people like Myron Ebel before it came to Australia. What happened was when the Australians went over, Australians like Corey Bernardi to Washington, this was all the tactics, uh, these were all the tactics that were discussed. And so then when they came back to Australia, they would barnstorm uh, around the country, but particularly in places like Roma in Queensland or in Gympie or in Gladstone, um, in the western towns of New South Wales like Tamworth, and this would be the message. Climate change is a hoax. This is just a great big tax on everything. And um, we won't leap ahead too much to Kevin Rudd yet, but I do remember sitting with Penny Wong when I interviewed her for the book because uh, she had been Kevin Rudd's first climate change minister. And she said, I'll never forget the day that Barnaby Joyce got up in the Senate, he was in the Senate in those days, and said, you know, this will be a great big tax on everything. This will be a tax on, on people whenever they move out of the house. And she said, my senior chief of staff turned to me and said, he's just found the line that will kill us. And, she, you know, she was right. He was right. Yeah. I mean, look, let's move to Kevin Rudd because he's so... so they, I mean, talk of pivot points in the book and talk about kind of bringing Shakespeare into Rosencrantz because here, here is real Shakespeare in tragedy <laughs> because because climate change both kind of made and felled Kevin Rudd at, at that period. Do you want, I mean, and he takes up, what, about three chapters in the whole book is, is about... That, that rise and that fall. Do, do, yeah, no, just uh, look, I got sucked into the Kevin Rudd story in the book probably more than I should have. But I don't, you, no, I don't think so. I think, yeah. I think, it, I think it's really important. And, and you're absolutely right because, you know, it was basically a Shakespearean tragedy. You know, here was the man who came to power on the greatest... This was the greatest moral challenge of our time. And I have no doubt that Rudd did believe that. I mean, I interviewed him in the early days of that. I was with the Sydney Morning Herald. I'd covered the Bali Climate Conference for the Herald. He made his grand entrance at the Bali Climate Conference. He was talking to Al Gore. You know, he was right there. And I think he was... In a way, he did not really understand, as a lot of them didn't, the blowback from the companies. And Greg Combay, who was then at the time assisting minister to uh, Penny Wong, said that because Com Combay was much more of a street fighter, he'd been in the ACTU, he dealt with big corporations, and he told me he felt Rudd was really naive about the kind of blowback they were going to get. So what happened, of course, as we know, uh, there were all these forces uh, working against Rudd. Corey Bernardi helping to bring down Malcolm Turnbull, who Rudd thought would be his bipartisan partner in climate change policy. So that was kicked away. He had the Murdoch media belting him every day on it. Uh, then he put all his eggs in the basket of President Obama, who'd just come to office, hoping that Obama would help pull off the big deal in Copenhagen. And then when all that fell over, because at the time Obama didn't have the backing at home and he also didn't have the Chinese on board, and all the realists knew that in Copenhagen, but Rudd wouldn't accept that. He kept on fighting and fighting it, trying to... He worked like a demon, trying to pull together what he could for the Copenhagen conference. And I talked to so many people who worked with him during that time, including Penny Wong, who said, you know, he worked so hard, it all fell apart, and he was utterly, utterly devastated. But as Rudd said in his own book, and he elaborated it, on it more with me when I interviewed him for this book. As soon as Copenhagen looked like it was going to go awry, but before any of the ink was dry on the documents, he had 
the Labour Party strategists on the phone to him in Copenhagen saying, if you want to drop your climate policy, this is the time to drop it. If you want to drop the pricing of carbon, this is the time to drop it. And suddenly Rudd, I think, became caught in this terrible dilemma. Did he want to survive as Prime Minister? Did he want to risk his Prime Ministership? Did he want to put it all on the line for climate change? And even one of his most loyal ministers, um, John Faulkner, who I interviewed, and Wayne Swan, his treasurer, said, when push, push came to shove, Kevin choked. He did not want to put his prime ministership on the line. He buckled. He gave up. Now, Rudd would say, I had the treacherous Julia Gillard on my shoulder. I couldn't do anything else. But even people who were loyal to Rudd felt that he should have crashed through. Anyway, that's a long answer. But Kevin was an important... Kevin Rudd was an important figure in all this. An enormous figure. I'm, and I'm really quite surprised because reading the book, I didn't get that sense from you that, that you thought that Rudd choked because it felt to me like you... I mean, he was being fought from within his own ranks as well. There was, there was that man, Howes, who was, um, you know, one of the faceless men, mm. uh, but who, he was at that time the head of this EMFEU, was he not? Yeah. Uh, AWU, uh, Australian Workers oh, Union, sorry, okay. AWU, very important, as well as the CFMEU, but House was very important, and they, he, they had a group going with Martin Ferguson, who was then the resources minister, called Brown Labor, and as opposed to Green Labor, and it was all about we have to protect the jobs. Yeah. And and so, look, I mean, he, he got cornered from every side. And he then, did. I mean, I remember reading that he was backing away from climate change uh, in the newspaper and feeling totally betrayed, uh, uh, pers pers personally betrayed at the time. And you're exactly right. And And when I spoke to Penny Wong about this, because she was one of the people... Um, as I think John Faulkner puts it in the book, Penny was on the side of the angels at that time. And she... She, she is no longer on the side? <laughs> and she is still, <laughs> I'm sure. In so, some sorry, Penny side. Wong, she's, <laughs> yeah. in, she's in the pantheon, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. But um, she was the one arguing with them and with the, with the power brokers in the party. She kept saying to them, you keep on telling us to drop the climate policy to drop the carbon pollution reduction scheme, as it was called. And you keep on telling me that we're going to lose. You keep on shoving all this polling under my nose, saying we're going to lose unless we drop this policy. I want to say to you, what the hell will happen to the Prime Minister if he drops this policy? His credibility is completely tied up with this policy. And Rudd said to me later when I interviewed him for the book, you know, Penny was right. Penny was right. And he said the last um, discussion of the inner cabinet he had on this before they decided to drop it, he insisted that they get Penny on the phone. She was flying back from Washington, I think, and had stopped over in Hawaii. And... Penny didn't tell me this, but Rudd did. He said she was crying on the phone. Don't drop it. But they did. And then, it, as you know, it leaked to the Sydney Morning Herald first. It was an absolute debacle. All the things they were supposed to do to help soften the blow, to put other policies in its place, none of it happened. And when I interviewed the... Um, Martin Parkinson, the senior bureaucrat who had been the head of the climate uh, de change department for Rudd, who'd seen this all the way through, he just said, that time, just like you, I lost it. It was all over. I just felt completely gutted, you know. And Penny said she sat in her office. The Herald was out that morning at... It was an absolute debacle, but she had nothing in place to replace it. She'd been given no notice, and she said 
as she sat in her office, the phones just kept ringing and ringing and ringing and she could not pick one up because she knew she had nothing to say. Gosh, that's a, a terribly sad story, that one. Mm. Yep, so you were actually in Copenhagen for, for this conference. I mean, sorry, what was that like? That must have been an oh, extraordinary experience. It was a... Um, it, it was really a, a shattering experience, I think, for everyone that was there. Um, not uh, Rudd, not the least of those. And I think I had quite, um, through the help of some climate scientists and climate activists, I had quite good uh, links into people who knew what was going on with the US delegation. And I was being told that there was a deal being done uh, to salvage the conference by Obama, you know, and the Chinese. The, at the time, and I think Rudd even admitted this later, that Rudd was with the Danes, uh, with the others, trying to negotiate in the room with the Chinese negotiators who would not, it, neither the Chinese nor the Indians wanted to give an inch because they I felt... Be I believe there was a kind of epithet that was attached to the Chinese at <laughs> that point, which probably, <laughs> probably because it's a family show, we shouldn't say. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on, um, you know, whether you need this recording to go out publicly. But it is in the book, so we probably can say No, I'm, I'm just teasing. Go, go right ahead. <laughs> but um, Rudd was very annoyed about this because he was... Brief, did a briefing afterwards in which there was some question about what he said. And uh, people who were there, let us say, said that he called the Chinese rat fuckers for <laughs> blowing up Copenhagen. Uh, he insisted to me, which is in the book, that he did not make that personal attack on the Chinese delegation as a diplomat that he is. Um, but he said that they had rat fucked the negotiations, which was quite <laughs> different. Quite, there's yes, a yes. distinction yes. there. It's Stephen. not you, it's just your behaviour. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> anyway, but of course, as we now know, because Hillary Clinton wrote a terrific account of this in her biography, um, there was a deal done at the top in the end with Obama, the Chinese, the Indians and the Bra Brazilians. And so there was a, a paper-thin uh, agreement that was not really an agreement that was um, that came out of Copenhagen. But look, weirdly, and I got attacked for this at the time, maybe quite justifiably, but I wrote a piece for the Herald essentially saying, you know, all is not lost here. Yes, this was a kind of diplomatic train wreck. Yes, we didn't get what we wanted. But the, for the first time... People were talking in the Copenhagen Agreement about keeping the temperature rise uh, to around two degrees. And this was quite a breakthrough. And I remember John Kerry, who has now kind of come back as Biden's, um, uh, President Biden's special envoy on climate, doing a press conference at the time and saying, look, do not be disheartened. You know, whatever went wrong here, the world has changed. That people know ultimately we have to do something. And that really became the starting point to negotiate the Paris Agreement. And one of the things that I found interesting about the book was that the actual negotiations they were having in Copenhagen at that time was only for a 50% reduction in emissions by 2050. Now we've, we've, kind of, we've come to understand that you know, 2040 is really where it has to be, and people are talking 2050 for the total. But one of the things that also struck me in the book was interesting is that um, how impartial you are throughout. I mean, clearly this is the mark of a, a good journalist, but there is a temptation, is there not, um, on an issue of this seriousness to take sides? Yeah, I think one of my aims in this book was to talk to people on the other side, to, to, and you'll see if you've read the book, um, that there are long interviews with people like Corey Bernardi, with Tony Abbott, with um, people who 
Nick Minchin, all these people who played a key role in uh, essentially derailing the climate policy. And what they said, I think, is reproduced at some length in parts. But that was because I have this very strong feeling that, um, you know, I had covered this area for 15 years. I'd seen the careers of prime ministers blown up by this. I'd seen the careers of opposition leaders blown up by this, of senior public servants and of senior business people blown up by this. And essentially we ended up federally with a policy completely derailed and shattered. And I wanted to explain why, and I wanted to explain why for an Australian audience, because I have this belief that until you know why we have this failure, you can't change it. And so that was my mission as a journalist, to explain to Australians who do want climate action what happened how it happened, and to make that empower you. So when you see those politics being played out, you know yourself how to respond to them and how to change them. And look, I mean, I've got this lot of questions that I'd like to kind of go chronologically, but I want to jump ahead for a minute now to where we are at the minute, because what you've just said, I, I saw you an interview on YouTube of you talking to Bob Carr, and towards the end of the interview, you talked about, which you made a point which I thought was really profound about um, the present Liberal government's incapacity to see that there is actually a thing called a carbon budget. Mm. This, I think, is the most frustrating thing and probably the most important thing, in a sense, uh, about the book. What I tried to do was to say, ultimately, what all this is about is that you have to have a climate and energy policy in this country that is actually tied to climate science. And a radical thought, I know. But I'd interviewed so many climate scientists back then throughout the 15 years and for the book. And this is where they would tear their hair out. You know, how do you have a, a climate and energy policy that doesn't have the science in it? Because un unless you have the science in it, you don't know what you have to cut. But the response was always by the government, and this is certainly um, the response from Angus Taylor and from Scott Morrison at the moment, you know, technology, not taxes, you know, we can only do what technology will allow us to do. The reality is, uh, not only in this country, but in other countries, but even in Australia, people set the policy they put in, for example, a renewable energy target, and then, guess what? People manufacturing solar power panels, uh, including people manufacturing solar panels in China, suddenly got more and more and more efficient. Solar panels here were subsidised. The market grew and grew and grew. And as you all know, I'm sure, Australia now has one of the most extraordinary records as, you know, the country where the top per capita <laughs> owners of solar panels on domestic roofs. That is a result of a policy. Uh, I was interviewing the UK High Commissioner the other day for a piece I'm doing for Australian Foreign Affairs magazine, and she said what we did in putting in a policy to say that we want to get diesel and petrol cars off the road um, and we want to stop their sales in the UK by 2030 means that we have the car companies, British car companies, uh, even like Jaguar, I think, coming out saying we will get electric vehicles on the road by, you know, in our company, we'll get them off the production line now by 2025. They're watching Tesla. They're watching Chinese companies uh, 
like I think NEO is the big one over there, uh, they're watching the German companies, the Japanese car companies. And I, I don't know if any of you ever saw this um, GM that had been backing Donald Trump on the exactly as um, as Morrison had been, you know, uh, electric cars will you know take away the weekend. You won't be able to go camping, all that sort of stuff. As soon as Biden came in, GM Motors absolutely did a flip. Its CEO said, "Yep, okay, we're now going to start doing um, electric vehicles." And in the Super Bowl, in the American Super Bowl this year, they had the most amazing, very funny ad about how GM was going electric run in the American Super Bowl. So, and, you know, that's in the space of, like, two months, a major corporation goes flip. But, but they have to, because the statistics came out today for car sales, new car sales in Norway for March, right? 723 petrol cars sold in March, 8,684 electric cars, 5,600 hybrids, 723 petrol cars. Mm. That's, that's, and what they're saying, nobody wants to buy because they won't have any resale value. Nobody wants to buy a petrol car because they, why would they, why would they? Mm. No, who's going to want to buy it in three years' time or whatever it is? But mm, I, I, I just want to keep with you there for a moment because one, what, what I, I heard you say in, in that, YouTube was that uh, was about the idea that we actually have a carbon budget. The world has a carbon budget. It's not yeah. Australia has a carbon budget. The world has a carbon budget. And our government just doesn't seem to recognise that they're part of that world. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because I think this is the, um, the, the reality that we all have to deal with. Okay. So we are a rich country with great intellectual capital as well as capital resources to switch our energy system. But we currently have a government saying, okay, whatever the carbon budget is, and we know what that means, I'm sure you all know what it means, that if we are going to get emissions down to this level, to net zero by 2050, everyone, every country has a budget they have to stay within. We're not recognising that every time we get up and say we are going to expand this coal mine, we are going to expand uh, this gas field, we are going to up, open up Beetaloo in the Northern Territory. So if we say that, what are we going to say to East Timor, the most impoverished country in our region, when they say, hell, we've got gas fields, we'd like to develop them. What are we going to say to Papua New Guinea when they want to develop their gas fields. Oh, no, we'd like to do ours, sorry. We want to take that part of the carbon budget. So you can see what's happening. And then wait for the Russians to jump in with their gas fields. Wait for the Saudis to jump in. And if we all start acting in this way where we're not going to recognise a carbon budget, that's what you have. You have a sort of free-for-all which is pushing the limits and the reality is we do have to recognise a carbon budget and how long it takes our government to recognise a carbon budget, I think, is the big question. They're getting so much pressure at the moment from the Biden administration on the one hand and the Europeans and the Brits on the other. I think we're getting to the point where sooner or later Scott Morrison is going to come up with a 2050 net zero um, pledge. Well, he's preferably there at the moment. Preferably there. But the question you all have to ask when that happens is, how are you going to get there if your 2030 target, which you're insisting you won't change, is 26 to 28% cut? It's just, in the carbon budget world, that's not going to work. Yeah. Look, I, I've got, I, I did want to talk to you about a couple of other contemporary issues, mm. but I, I do have one more question about climate change, if that's all right, which mm. is that it seems to have been a peculiarly Australian thing. It's not... Uh, the, the, the battle that's 
been going on about climate science. Yes, it has. It is in America, but most of Europe, Britain, a lot of the other countries in the world embraced this a long time ago, even right-wing parties, mm. not just left-wing. It, it, Australia, it's become a political battle. And I just wanted, if you'd like to talk to that just for a moment, about why that should be and, and where we go from here, how we get out of that. Yeah, well, I think it's, uh, it's pretty basic when you look at it. The countries that have had the most toxic politics around this issue in the democratic world is us, the US and Canada. And that's the obvious reason. We've all, we've, all three of us have got big fossil fuel industries and all of us have got the kind of manufacturing that prospered from cheap fossil fuel electricity. And so it's being able to change that where there are so many vested interests. And it's not just, uh, you know, the senior executives from Glencore and West, or what was Western Mining or whatever. You are talking about jobs. You're talking about a lot of taxes. You're talking about royalties. And for a lot of us, you're talking about your superannuation funds who invest in these. So... It is hard, and no one's saying it's not hard, but basically we are incredibly lucky in Australia, as I said before, because we do have the intellectual capital, the physical capital, and the wherewithal to make this transition. We're not an East Timor, or for that matter, even a Russia, that has far less resources than us to make this transition. And I think the wonderful work that people like um, Professor Ross Garneau has done is to say, hey, Australia can really profit from this transition. Yeah. And if you just think about it, yeah. they can. And that's what I think a lot of... But it's become corporate. such a political weapon, hasn't it? I mean, this is the trouble is that, that it's, it, regardless of any science or logic or ideology or anything, it's actually a, a, it, it's a mallet to hit the opposition with it. It is, and um, I did a forum a few weeks ago uh, in the northern beaches of Sydney, and it was a fascinating forum because um, I, w I had the pleasure of doing what you're doing during the interview, and uh, we had Zali Stegel, who a lot of you may know is the woman who uh, knocked off Tony Abbott in Warringah, Tim Flannery, one of our great scientists, but the other person who agreed to come to a forum much like this uh, in the northern beaches of Sydney was Mike Cannon-Brooks, probably yes, now yeah. leading um, billionaire, who has decided, from his point of view, he is going to put serious money into Australia's energy transition. And just listening to the potential that he spoke about. You know, I, I don't know whether any of you have heard, probably some of you, a lot of you have, of his Sun Cable project he's investing in in northern Australia with Twiggy Forest. Their aim is to, act, to actually export Australia's solar power. Uh, first, I mean, they want to power the Northern Territory with it, but they want to export it through an underground under seawater cable to Singapore. And they are putting in serious money. 25 billion, I believe. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's people like him, uh, and there's, in fact, there's a very similar project being run by, um, it's again, it's a, it's a uh, collaboration with US investors, with um, the big Danish wind farm companies and a couple of others, they have another project, a fascinating project, which they're actually doing with the indigenous people in uh, northwest Western Australia. Again, the same idea, harnessing those solar resources in northwest Australia uh, to produce energy that can, we can actually use uh, to process minerals in northwest green Australia. Steel. Yeah. Green, green steel. Yeah. yeah. And it's this kind of thinking that I think finally some of the leading business people in Australia are 
pressing on people like Morrison and Angus Taylor and saying, you know, we have a real problem here that we might actually miss out on this. If the world is really changing, uh, do we really want Australia to be the laggards who are left behind? Um, and that's why I find it so fascinating now to watch this balance of... Um, of power that's going on in Canberra as the two sides fight it out uh, because I think we're entering, a, you know, a phase where that battle this year is really going to come to a head. Yeah, thank you. Now, look, I'm kind of cognizant of the time here. I do want to go to questions, but I really couldn't resist the opportunity of having one of Australia's foremost mm -hmm. female journalists um, on the stage to ask whether you'd had an opportunity to read Aaron Patrick's column that was in the Australian Financial Review Whoa. the other day, where he, yeah. where, where, where he suggested that that um, that the women, um, particularly people like Samantha Maiden and everything, were just a, a cabal of active activist women journalists. Uh, and how, how you reacted to that? Uh, I just, uh, my heart sank <laughs> when I read that column. I just thought, oh my God, are we still here? Um, <laughs> And, you, you know, the thing that really, really kind of blew me away was a sense that still he didn't get it. Not only still did he not get it, that this was a re these are real political issues affecting people and not just women. You know, there's a lot of men who are very affected by this and who, are, you know, are supporting uh, women in this, uh, in this recognition about harassment, about sexual assault, about how things haven't changed and about what goes on in Parliament House, you know. And I just thought, yes, Sam Maiden... She's a very gutsy journalist. She's a full-on gutsy journalist. But, you know, would anyone ever write that about Chris Yulman, who's a full-on gutsy journalist, about Kerry O'Brien when he was there? I mean, the fact that... Uh, yeah. A cabal of activist men. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And what were they doing? What what did Sam Maiden do? She broke the Brittany Higgins story. I mean, in my book, that's actually a huge achievement. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was I was taking. I've been watching on Netflix a, a, a rather interesting show called. Um, pretend it's a city with Fran Leibovitz. I don't know if you've been Haven't watching. Haven't seen it. Heard a lot about but it. It's a series of half-hour episodes where she's talking to Martin Scorsese. But um, she talks about having arrived in New York as a 20-year-old in 1970, and uh, all her friends were working as waitresses, and she refused to work as a waitress and, and cleaned houses. She was a writer, she was a mm. journalist, she wanted to do all these different things. Fascinating, terribly mm. funny program, really incredibly witty, cynical, uh, uh, wonderful program. But she's talking about this particular period and, and they say, well, why don't I can get you a job in this restaurant, come, come and work with this, you get paid better. She says, no, I don't want to fuck the manager. Ah, and and yep. she said, this was, this was the prerequisite for a young girl to get a job in a restaurant in New York at that time was that if you didn't have sex with him, at least you know you're allowed mm. him to put his hand up your skirt or something. And she said, "I don't, I don't want to do that." And but she took this discussion a bit further because the program must have been recorded about eight months ago, nine months ago. And she was saying that the world has changed, that a tipping point has actually been reached for the first time in my life. She said, "I see something happen that I've never seen before," which is where. Women are no longer going to take it. This is not going to happen anymore. It's it, on any level, anywhere in the Western world. Well, I yes, I hope that is happening, and I think that you know the first Four Corners program that came out on this, the Canberra Bubble program in um, November last year, Louise Milligan's program. There was huge amounts of controversy about that, including in the world of journalism, about whether she had enough 
to go with because I guess those in the know knew that she had been chasing uh, the details about what had happened with Christian Porter all those years ago and had not, in a sense, landed that interview and it became a rather different story about the Canberra bubble. And one of the things I thought was fascinating was I went to a dinner of senior female journalists shortly after that, no names, no pack drill, um, who were quite critical of the program, saying she should have held off, she should have waited for more detail. At the same time, uh, the night before, I'd been talking to younger female journalists and also following the Twitter feeds on this, and all the younger female journalists were saying, go Louise, you know, all power to you. And I realised there is, you know, there, there is this upwelling, I think, of we're not going to take it anymore, that you just can't put a lid on now. And I think since that time, especially in the last month of these years, the conversations I've had with those senior female journalists has really changed. And we went round the table uh, this particular night, would have been about three or four weeks ago, and suddenly all these stories came out from these women who would talk about, oh, yeah, I remember that time that I was assaulted. Yes, I, I remember that time that I thought, you know, I'd never make it back, you know, between the studio and my apartment. And... It was really interesting to me, these professional, successful women. Suddenly, almost every one of them had a tale about what had happened to them. And I think what's happened in this country, weirdly, since the Brittany Higgins case, the Porter case, allegations, whatever happens with them, it's broken something open and it's not going to, you know, easily be suppressed anymore. So, let's, let's give the audience a chance to ask you some, some questions. Thank you for a, a brilliant and incredibly thoughtful analysis of politics over the last 15 years, Marion. But I'm more concerned about the future and somebody that listens to Will Stafford and the climate change IPCC, and really they're pointing a very bleak future. And I'm wondering to what degree do you buy into the argument that we're past the point of no return or so close to the point of no return that really, unless these fabulous women that are getting very angry are going to suddenly become climate change activists, where it seems to me they're entirely preoccupied, and understandably so, uh, by what's been going on with women, um, that we've lost the battle. Humanity is doomed. Thank you. Uh, and, yeah, it's a, I think this is a very important question. It's this idea of whether we are doomed. And for someone who spends a lot of time with climate scientists, it is a depressing story. However, I... I'm going to, you know, uh, people will probably accuse me of being Pollyanna-ish here. But what I do know is this, that so much of the time when I spent interviewing people on the other side of this debate, you know, the business people and the politicians who don't accept climate action, you know, if you take action, you're going to wreck the economy, et cetera, et cetera. We can't move because we don't have the technology. All those arguments, right? Instead, what I've seen is all those predictions that they made, solar power would never, ever come into its own. Battery uh, storage would never come into its own. Electric vehicles would never come into their own. This is changing so rapidly. Now, the question is, we are. We are absolutely on a deadline with this. This decade is it, you know. We not only do we have to make the transition, but we have to do something that's going to be very difficult. 
we also have to ensure that our governments in the first world get this technology to countries that are not that wealthy. And this technology has to make them leapfrog from where they are now on very crude coal-fired power to straight to renewable energy, straight to serious battery technology, straight to serious green hydrogen technology, to green steel, to all these things. And I think that will be our challenge. But I do think it's doable. You know, the, John Kerry gave this terrific speech about two months ago. Uh, I think it was to the World Sustainable Development Summit in, uh, in Europe. And he laid out how fast we have to go. And it's fast, really fast. But he did say at the end that it is doable. And, but it's going to take a huge amount of effort. But there is this... Um, uh, I was listening to this speech, and I mentioned this the other night in Brisbane. There was a, there was a wonderful woman uh, called Audrey Zilberman. She was just a bureaucrat, but a key bureaucrat in Australia, running the Australian energy market operator here, and I think she got slightly disillusioned. Anyway, not that she's ever said that publicly, but she left, and she's gone into looking at how artificial intelligence can speed up uh, the shift to clean energy grid systems. But she was giving this speech to a room full of Australian energy executives, and she said, I want to leave you with this thought. We are the last generation that can allow the world to avoid dangerous climate change. It actually, it has to happen now, happen now. This is the decade. And I know the scientists are despondent, but there is a view that if we do act absolutely with purpose this decade, we can do it. Well, thank you for that thought. Thank you, Marion and Stephen. Um, I want to ask you what you would say to Miss Palaszczuk, who seems to me to be quite sympathetic to expanding the unconventional gas industry in Queensland. Right now, we're all the sort of conservation-minded people in Queensland are trying to find a way to make, to change this, but we, we don't know where, how we're going with that. But it, it, it looks crazy, but it certainly looks as if the, like people like Santos have got their tentacles right into the heart of the Labor Party. Thank you. I know exactly what you're saying. Um, when I think it was in February this year when it um, might have been a little bit earlier, Scott Morrison gave his speech on, uh, you know, what we should do for the future with our energy policy and first rolled out the gas-led recovery. And I was sitting watching it at home just thinking, you know, this is just unbelievable, quite frankly. And the thing that I think is perhaps uh, most depressing about it, there's the, the depressing part about thinking that we can increase the fossil fuel assets at the moment, uh, which scientifically, all the scientists are saying, no, you've got to actually peak gas this decade, it's got to go down. It's got to, you know, go down and peter off. This is a very short bridge, transition bridge when we talk gas, and that bridge has run out. But if you read the business pages, what's even more depressing when you look at what companies like Origin and AGL are doing, they are pushing ahead on these gas leases and saying in their financial um, statements 
The whole purpose of this is so they can sell them down to someone else, you know. It's what's, what's profitable for them and what the state governments can give them is a way of making money from the leases. And the reality is those assets are going to be stranded assets. And, you know, a whole lot of people, the taxpayers, the investors, etc., are going to lose money. The people who are going to make money are some of the corporations. The reality is that this endless expansion of gas is not going to... It's just not going to make money in the end. And they know that. And it's the same in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. All these, all these companies pushing for the expansions are at the same time, with the other hand, trying to sell their assets. And the depressing thing is when you see people like Joel Fitzgibbon going around the Hunter Valley saying, you know, anyone who opposes the expansion of coal mines here, like Malcolm Turnbull or anyone else, um, is destroying the jobs of coal miners. The reality is those thermal coal mines are not, in the, by the end of this decade, going to be profitable. Those companies will sell out and walk away, and they will walk away without, you know, having any responsibility to find jobs for those workers, find jobs for their children, because what they'll do is, you know, like they want to do in the Northern Territory, they'll sell to a minor player who won't have the resources that they have, and they will get out and leave, basically, the taxpayer to, you know, pick up the bill. And I think that's why what's going on at the moment, especially with the state governments, you really need to pick apart, you know, what the plans are for these leases, because in most cases, you know, the, co the companies, the big players, like, AGL, Origin, Santos, you know, then they're really not going to be there for the long haul. To what Gillian asked, though, was what, what would you say to Anastasia Palaszczuk about this? Well, I would say to Anastasia Palaszczuk, you know, is she doing this for a short-term deal? Uh, so that essentially, you know, and I don't know what the strategy, her strategy is, but, you know, look, call me cynical for being <laughs> in this business of journalism too long, but I just can't help but think that a lot of this is about placating the AWU and other people, no, seriously, and other people in the union movement who essentially help fund the Labour Party, you know? And I think that you've really got to break down... Where is this pressure coming from? Who are the lobbyists who are putting on this pressure? And have they seriously th thought through where this is going, whether it's going to be a stranded asset? I don't know if you saw the other day, you know, with the famous Curtis Island um, LNG plants, which I cover quite a bit in the book, you know, companies like Shell are selling these down, their interest down at the moment. That's the reality of the Australian gas industry. Chevron is trying to sell down some of its assets in the Northwest Shelf. All that's buried in the business pages while these politicians come out front making these political announcements. And I think it's... I frankly think there is a lot of dishonesty about this and it really... You really need to get out what is going on. And look, a lot of you, I'm sure, will be shareholders either via superannuation companies or you could buy some shares in these companies. Go to their meetings. Go to their meetings and demand answers. You know, this is what's happening in the US, that a lot of people are actually going to the Exxon mobile meetings and getting them to disclose how much they're having to write down all these assets. 
and then put that back on the politicians. That's my view. Now, we've really only got four minutes left, so we've got time for another question here, probably just one more question. I'm sorry about that. Um, I, I took too long. Thanks, Marion. I've actually been in, um, involved in shareholder actions myself, and I think it's very effective. Good. I was wondering <laughs> if you could comment... Oh, thanks. I was wondering if you could comment on the role of social um, movements and uh, non-violent direct action by groups like Galilee Blockade, Stop Adani and Extinction Rebellion. Uh, I get asked this question quite a lot and my, my position is this, that anyone who is interested in uh, doing something about climate change you need to choose the path that suits you. If you're a direct action person, you're going to do that. From my point of view, I'm a journalist that feels that my work is to try and inform people how power works and how power works around climate policy. Someone else here may decide they, they don't want to go on the front line, but they do want to take action through their superannuation fund, through their financial fund. Uh, I, I was at a forum the other day where a group of women said that they were trying to fight, one of them was trying to fight with her bank about still investing in fossil fuels. And the bank was basically, you know, sort of, who do we, why do we care, one woman's ringing up, whinging about fossil fuel. And she said what she started doing was collecting whole groups of women to network and then all ring the banks, all lobby the banks one after the other until the, until the sort of group got bigger and bigger and bigger. I guess what I'm saying to you is that uh, people, there are a lot of people, we know this from all the polling, who want a serious climate policy in this country. There are a lot of avenues for you to take action. And I don't think that I'm the one to dictate what that should be. I think that people need to take the action that they think that they can take, that they think is effective. I'd like you please to put your hands together for Marion Blackett.